<laughs> Hello and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. You better not include that. Well, now I have to or else people are going to be confused. You so you did that to yourself. No. Uh, but. <laughs> this is a music history <laughs> podcast where I'm teaching Mika the entire story. Well, no. Most of the story of <laughs> American music. Woo. <laughs> So give us a review and stuff if you like what you hear. If you don't, tweet us at Sound of History with an underscore after it to let us know why you don't like us and what we can do to make you like I us. I don't think I want that. <laughs> I I mean, I'm a people pleaser, but like I, I don't want people to tweet us and tell us why they don't like me. Not you, us, our show in general. Yeah, but you know things are going to get personal. I don't know that. I don't think anyone's going to tweet us. <laughs> I mean, I know that too, but like, <laughs> hypothetically, people are mean, but not yeah. our people. That's our true. Our people are cool. There are dozens of you and you're all cool. There are dozens of us. <laughs> dozen. So we haven't had an episode in a couple of weeks, so I'm sure you've got a lot of built up stuff for your segment. And we've got a long episode oh, ahead no. of us. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into Mika's the host now so we can get to our extra long episode. Okay. Mika is the host now. Um, Mika is trying to be a plant mom, but like not really. Not like the plant moms out there who are like dedicated and have like so many children. Well, you would probably be that if circumstances allowed. I don't think so. We just have cat children that would kill your new children. And we have apparently plant children that would kill our old children. Yeah, it's a whole war. It's just a mess. Why can't my children just get along? <laughs> but I have I have herbs now. It's like the gatekeeping. Gatekeeping. No. Gateway? Gateway. It's the gateway plant. <laughs> and And yeah. And they're outside so that the cats do not eat them. But, like, I just want to have plants that won't kill my cats because I love my cats. My plants are going to die either way. So, like, <laughs> but my cats aren't. So I'd like for <laughs> the well, plants eventually. to not hurt them. Uh-uh. <laughs> Mika is no longer the host now. Talk about Frank. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we're. In the middle of a little break, like we're going along the timeline of American music. We started with minstrelsy. We're marching towards, I don't know what, I don't know when we're going to end, but we're taking a little break to talk about the Rat Pack. So do you want to like give us a brief overview of where we're at in the Rat Pack right now? Like who have we talked about? Do you remember anything about them? I don't want to think. <laughs> Can't I just listen today? That's going to be a very boring podcast then. <sighs> All right. I'll give the people what they want. Birds. <laughs> yes, we talked about birds. No, we didn't. Last week was Dean Martin. Yeah, he was cool. I say it last week. It was like two weeks ago. He was chill. Yeah. Last episode. He was chill. He was cool. Big fan. He reunited with with his old friend, and that was precious. And he doesn't know how to use, how to give himself a nickname. <laughs> yeah, Dino Martini. No, the crochet kid. God, kid crochet. <laughs> that sounds like something your mom would make up. <laughs> and then we had Sammy Davis Jr. Before that, also chill. And then before that, we had the actors slash comedians Peter Lawford and Joey Bishop. Also relatively chill. Yeah. I feel like everyone in the Rat Pack is like, oh, I'm I'm cool. I'm chill. I'm like down to earth. And then you have. Then we get to Frank, which is. <laughs> Hot Mess Express. Up. So what do you know about Frank? What are your thoughts and feelings about Frank Sinatra? I mean, my thoughts and feelings are overall very positive just because of listening to his music my entire life. Um, and I have a feeling that. All of that could crash down. But you said you're not going to like get into like the, the TT. No. We're, we're talking about like his. his Mostly his music career. Yeah, his career. Yeah, but there's like, a I lot. Just, I just want to like him. Yeah. 
because I, I do. I have for years. And yeah, I, mean, I, I struggle with the fact that he's like kind of problematic. Yeah, well, he's, we're mostly just talking about his music career in this because there's a lot that can be said about Frank, but we don't have like three hours to talk about him. So I kind of stuck with the theme that we do with all of our episodes where I just kind of give the history of their career and then maybe we'll touch on some of the more important personal stuff that was going on, but just kind of staying with his career. We could do a whole other episode on just his personal life, but you know, that's not this show. So, but it could be, so that's the kind of stuff that I want to hear. I'm just saying, well then you should do an episode where you're the host and you talk about that stuff. Okay. So this one was also a little bit intimidating to write because he has such like a long and storied career. He's one of the biggest names in American music. Everyone knows Frank Sinatra, but I don't really know all that much about him. We didn't really talk about him in any of the classes I took. He just kind of like, you know, he's a pop culture icon, but I didn't know much about him. I read one biography about him, but it was very anti-Frank biased. So I don't know. I've been, I was like very hesitant to write this episode and I wanted to do it right. So if I get anything wrong, let me know on Twitter so we can correct it in future episodes. All right, let's go. I'm ready. I'm not, but I am. (laughs) Francis Albert Sinatra was born on December 12th, 1915 in Hoboken, New Jersey. See, right here we have our problem. Uh Uh-oh. He's a Christmas baby. That's why he has this need for everyone to pay attention to him because he only ever got presents <laughs> for his birthday and Christmas combined. All of his problems can stem from this <laughs> one thing. He is an attention hog because he didn't get the attention he so craved. Okay, we'll see if that theory holds up. He was the only child of Italian immigrants Martin and Dolly Sinatra. Apparently, Frank had some serious injuries during birth due to the use of forceps, which caused scarring on his cheek, neck, and ear, and perforated his eardrum. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that stuff is gnarly. Yeah, and those injuries would last him his entire life. I didn't know he had scars. I never noticed that. I mean, they were probably a little bit more subtle and covered up, but yeah. He was so badly injured that the doctor presumed him dead. What?! But his grandmother picked him up, ran him under cold water, and slapped his back, which woke him up. (laughs) Hold on. What? I don't know. (laughs) It's just one of the accounts. They mutilated this baby so much as he was coming out that they thought he was dead and just like, we're like, oh, I guess he's dead. But like, what? (laughs) What? Was he was he not breathing? If you're not breathing, like it's not like CPR hasn't been around. Like I I have so many questions. What I've, the actual crap? I feel like around this time, 1915, doctors aren't what they are 1915. now. 1915. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Because it's like even when Jerry Lee Lewis was born, it was in rural Alabama or Mississippi, somewhere down there, and they invited the doctor over. They didn't invite him. They asked him to come over with the doctor. It had a couple drinks. It was nighttime. Showed up and finished a bottle of whiskey and just passed out. So <laughs> his dad was forced to like help give birth because the doctor was passed out on the couch. Oh, my God. So it was, birth was a whole different animal back then. I, anyway. Grandmothers. God, God bless <laughs> women. God bless women. Women. Yeah. Women. He was also supposed to be named Martin after his father. But the priest conducting his baptism accidentally called him Frank after his godfather. And his parents just kind of went with it. And they were like, all right, because he's Frank now. Frank is like the blessed name, right? And I so, guess. like, you gotta go Frank. Other than Martin. We could have had Martin Sinatra instead of Frank Sinatra. I like it better. Well, technically it was Francis Sinatra, but you know, whatever. His dad was a professional firefighter and amateur boxer. Nice. He was a really passive guy who was often subdued and overshadowed by Dolly, who was a firecracker. Is Dolly his mom? Yes. I I love this. She became something of a force in Hoboken and operated pretty high up in the local democratic circles. She was a professional midwife and also ran an illegal abortion service on the side. Hell yeah, girl. (laughs) One of Frank's wives claimed Dolly was abusive, but that wasn't ever corroborated. 
She was a dominant force in Frank's life and shaped a lot of his characteristics and career. She was a she was a force. I'm she honestly I'm here for Dolly. Dolly sounds like a woman who knows what she's doing in life. Yeah, she was like very responsible for getting people elected in Hoboken and like she was because she was take bribes and like uh, she women was, in politics. I mean, the bribery is, is, you know, like, but still yeah. women in politics. Let's go. Frank was a really skinny kid and growing up in a working class Italian neighborhood. That wasn't exactly a great thing. He learned how to box to defend himself, but his mother had another idea. During the Great Depression, she frequently gave him money, so he was always the best-dressed kid and had plenty of money to give gifts to his friends and have all of the like new gadgets and stuff. Yeah, you can tell the politics are there. <laughs> so people wanted to be his friend. Oh, my God. <laughs> it worked, and he had a pretty close-knit group of tight friends growing up. A lot of the kids who would be forced to like defend him from bullies because he was small. From a young age, Frank was interested in music. He loved the classic crooners like Rudy Valley and idolized Bing Crosby. Same. <laughs> when he was 15, his uncle gave him a ukulele, and Frank started to sing and play at family gatherings. Oh, my God. He's the ukulele white girl. Yep. Oh, my God. And his family was probably just like, oh, just shut this kid up. This <laughs> little 15-year-old with a ukulele trying to play while you're hanging out. Oh, no. I would. That would probably be very annoying. <laughs> oh, no. Especially because back then, he wasn't known for having the best voice. Mm. He also started to arrange bands for his high school dances. However, he didn't last long in school because he was expelled for, quote, general rowdiness. I don't know what that means, but that's what's listed on his official expelled report. Oh, my God. <laughs> his mother got him a job as a delivery guy for his godfather's newspaper while he played a few clubs in and around Hoboken. With his ukulele? I, I think he was just singing at this point, but yeah. No, it's, it's with his okay, ukulele. Sure. <laughs> ukulele nightclub. In 1935, Frank got his first taste of success as the lead singer of a local quartet called the Hoboken Four. It also earned him a reputation as a bit of a local heartthrob. He got that gig with the quartet because his mother convinced the other guys, originally a trio called the Three Flashes, to let him join. This mom. Yep. She's oh my like gosh. responsible for everything. She, they're Italian, right? Yeah. I see it. <laughs> One of the members said they only let him join because he had a car and could drive them to gigs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this kid. <laughs> the group won a talent show and won a six-month contract to perform on radio shows across the United States. They toured the country, but Frank was the only member of the group who seemed to care about it. The others didn't have any really serious musical ambitions, so they soon broke up. Frank continued to play club dates around New Jersey. Frank started working at a singing cafe called the Rustic Cabin that had ties to a New York City radio station. There, he recorded his first song with the Frank Mann Orchestra. Do you want to hear that song? You know I do. Okay, here is Frank's first song. It's mostly an orchestra song. I still can't get over that he's like... The rich kid that no one really wants to hang out with, yep. but like he's there for like yeah. the money he gets and stuff. stuff. Yeah, it really fits with what I yeah. have his come future. to know about his personality. See, this is just mostly orchestra. This is a horrible recording. <laughs> Probably thought to care much about it at the time. All right, bad recording. Can't really hear anything. Just have so much love for his voice. Like <laughs> his voice is like a hug. Yeah, that's good. That's why he was called the voice. In 1939, a trumpeter named Harry James saw him perform and hired him for a band that he wanted to start. Harry recently left Benny Goodman's orchestra, who was one of the top band leaders in the country at that time. I remember that. Yeah, he was one of the kings of swing, I think. So, yeah, he was kind of a big deal. This was a huge break for Frank. He made $75 per week working a radio station in New York City with Harry's band. When was this? This was 1939. 39, $75 a week. Okay. Yeah, this was during the war, too. 
which Frank, I don't know if we talk about it, but he got out of it because of his perforated eardrum. That does mean that you can't fight. Exactly. <laughs> he, uh, he also developed a lot more as a singer during this time. He recorded his first commercial song called From the Bottom of My Heart that sold less than 8,000 copies. <laughs> All of the other songs he released in this period also had really weak sales. Here is From the Bottom of My Heart. Hopefully it's a better recording. I'm excited. Oh, he's so cute. Look at them lips. He got some thick lips. Skinny boy, thick lips. It's the dream. <laughs> I still can't get over the story of his birth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, trumpeter, let's hear Frank. I like the trumpet. It's lovely. Start wearing my pants like that. Okay, it's kind of back in style. From the I wasted. Let's go. Heart, I massive around the thighs and calves. What more can I say? From the bottom of my heart, I need you. You're part of my day. It's an interesting melody. Yeah, his voice isn't quite as good as it became. He's adorable. I love you from the bottom of my heart. All right, just from the bottom of my heart. I like it. In 1939, he also married his longtime sweetheart, Nancy. However, a a year before that, while working at the rustic cabin, he was arrested on the charge of seduction. I'm sorry? (laughs) Basically. Was he arrested by a stripper? (laughs) Basically, seduction meant a single man convinces an unmarried woman of good repute into inappropriate actions. Oh, my God. However, it was soon discovered that the woman was, in fact, married. So the charge changed okay. The charge changed to adultery. But after he paid the bond, the charges were dropped, and he got out of the situation after only a few hours in jail. Oh, my goodness. This all fits. And it hit his reputation pretty hard in, like, the Northeast can we talk about how weird this is that you could yeah. be arrested for that for seduction yeah <laughs> and it's like how was the woman involved well she got seduced yeah definitely <laughs> i mean she's not smart enough to figure it out for herself and make her own choices so frank's six month stint with harry james netted him 10 recordings all of them commercial failures But they showed his potential, and he started to get a good reputation amongst music professionals. Harry James graciously let Frank out of his contract when he received a far more lucrative offer from band leader Tommy Dorsey. That's nice. Tommy was a massive figure in music at that time. It was one of the biggest orchestras in the country, and it stayed that way while Frank fronted it from 1940 until 1942. Tommy said about Frank's early performances with the band, quote, you could almost feel the excitement coming up out of the crowds when the, could, when the kid stood up to sing. Remember, he was no matinee idol. He was just a skinny kid with big ears. I used to stand there so amazed I'd almost forget to take my own solos. I think skinny kids with big ears is like just a telling of a good voice. Yeah, it was Bing as well. He I think it's just like, all ears. right, there it is. He, he must have the voice of an angel. Those big ears the only reason they made it. Dorsey would be a huge influence on Frank. Frank copied his stage mannerisms, his perfectionism, and even his hobby for toy trains. Oh my god, what a dork. (laughs) Frank later said that the only two people he was ever afraid of was his mother and Tommy Dorsey. That also tracks. In April of 1940, Frank scored his first hit with the Dorsey band called Polka Dots and Moonbeams. Here is that song. Look at how innocent Tommy Dorsey looks. And he's a guy who frightened Frank Sinatra. Perfectionism, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
this is the Tommy Dorsey part. I think it's lovely. It's just trumpets. I love trumpets like this. Like, the nice, like, relaxed style of trumpet versus, like, big band. I'm gonna blow out your eardrum. I like that, too. Skip forward a little bit, see if I can get the front. Country dance was being held the difference is that it has that thing on the end of it, right? I That's what makes it all nice and wild. And yes. Oh, beg your pardon. Suddenly I saw polka dots and moonbeams all around the pug nose dream. The music started and was I the perplexed one. I held my breath and said, may I have the next one in my frightened arms? Polka dots and moonbeams sparkled on a so pug nose dream. There were questions in the eyes of other dancers. This is so cute. What's a bug nose dream? I don't know, I don't know either, but I love it's it. First little minor hit. During this time with Tommy Dorsey, Frank proved that he was capable of singing ballads and up-tempo songs masterfully. The Dorsey arrangers started to write songs that catered to Frank's skills and really allowed him to show off his ability. His fourth chart appearance, I'll Never Smile Again, was his first one that topped the charts. And here is that song. I have to sit through a lot of time. Oh, no, it's hard one. Smile again until I smile at you. That was boring. Yeah. It's no polka dots and moonbeams. It's no polka dots and moonbeams. By 1942, Frank believed that his star had eclipsed Tommy Dorsey's, and he wanted to strike out on his own. Sounds right. That was a very risky venture, since very few big band singers managed to successfully launch a a solo career up to this time. The swing era lasted from 1935 until the end of World War II, and Sinatra was the biggest singer of that period, probably because he didn't have to go to war. His injured eardrum kept him out of enlisting or being drafted. That fact angered a lot of people who saw him as a coward for not going to war. I'd I'd honestly be a little mad, too. But he did what he could by helping to sell war bonds. But, I mean kind of pales in comparison to the thousands of people who died but you know whatever so after frank saw his chance to be a superstar and his insatiable desire to be bigger than being crosby he wanted to go solo in 1942 however he was stuck in an absurd contract with dorsey that entitled tom that entitled tommy dorsey to 40 percent of all of frank's earnings throughout his life obviously frank wanted out of that no one knows for sure, but the prevailing opinion is that Frank's mafia godfather friend, named Willie, held a gun to Tommy's head to convince Tommy to drop the contract. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, that's never been confirmed, but that's what's said. Uh, but whatever happened, Frank was out of his contract and out of his friendship with Tommy Dorsey. They never reconciled. Yeah, that's a horrible way to treat someone yeah. that, like brought you up yeah. in the industry like that's it's also a horrible. horrible contract to tie someone to but you know that doesn't mean you should have a gun held to your head years later tommy when asked about frank said quote he's the most fascinating man in the world but don't put your hand in the cage end quote which i feel like really sums up frank pretty well very quickly after leaving tommy dorsey frank became a cultural phenomenon this was when he earned the reputation of having teen girl fans that he made swoon 
and he earned the nicknames The Voice and The Sultan of Swoon. <laughs> I can't. So far away from the mic. That's so dumb. <laughs> Before this, songs were mostly recorded for adults, and Frank helped unlock this whole new audience eager to buy records. But Frank's publicist deserves a lot of credit for engineering this image of Frank as a shy, vulnerable, lovable guy from a rough neighborhood who managed to make it big. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The publicist encouraged photos with fans, made sure fans had access to interviews, and helped them create over 1,000 Sinatra fan clubs. Wow. All of this came to a head on October 12th, 1944, when the Sinatra hysteria reached its peak. Frank was playing the Paramount Theater on Broadway, and his fans came out in the thousands to see the performance. About 35,000 fans couldn't get into the theater and caused a massive commotion outside on the streets. Part of the problem was that fans who attended the first show refused to leave the theater, (laughs) and so fans who wanted to attend the second show couldn't get in. I'd be mad. The police were called to defuse the situation, and this little kerfuffle is now known as the Columbus Day Riot. All right. So Frank was known for his hysterical fans and his appeal to teenage girls. But was any of that real? His appeal to teenage girls was real. Okay. In the years after these events, it turns out all of this might have started because of a genius marketing ploy from that same publicist, whose name was George Evans. George auditioned girls who fit that audience he wanted to target. He chose the girls who could sing the loudest, paid them $5, and positioned them in strategic places throughout the theater. So these paid fans would whip the other crowd members into a frenzy. Oh, my God. It's really smart, actually. (laughs) That's kind of brilliant. The manipulation. Yeah. But it's also been argued that George's idea was unnecessary, and Frank would have generated that kind of excitement regardless. Oh, my God. In 1943, Frank made his first film appearance and kept a string of minor appearances until 1945. For most of 1943 and 1944, he couldn't really record due to a strike from the American Federation of Musicians. But in 1944, he signed with Columbia Records and started a string of hits that came to be known as the Columbia Era. That's all the good stuff? Yeah. Well, some of it. I think he's had like other eras with other hits. Mm. Here is one of them called Put Your Dreams Away that became kind of like his theme song at the time because singers needed theme songs back then apparently. (laughs) For another day Like his voice is beautiful, but the then I'll have all of his like music has this underlying beautiful orchestral you. like well arranged. Um, it's it's gorgeous, like all of it. It wouldn't be the same without. Yep. Well, that was put your dreams it, it just wouldn't be the same without the like orchestra arrangement. It's so yeah. pretty. I mean, that's what you get when you're Frank Sinatra and you can hire the best arrangers and orchestras. Mm. By 1946, Frank was performing on stage 45 times per week, singing up to 100 songs a day. Yeah. Take a break, dude. And earning $93,000 per week. Well, yeah. (laughs) But like... It's probably why he didn't want to take a break. Rest your voice. He also released his first album, The Voice of Frank Sinatra, which, of course, reached number one. Soon, he was selling 10 million records a year and was Columbia's biggest cash cow. They even let him do an album where he conducted music, which wouldn't appeal at all to his fan base, but he was their golden boy, so they just kind of like, yeah, Frank wants to do it, fine. We'll make like $30 million off his next album. Let's let him do this flop. 
But soon after that, his career started to slump. In 1947, he started to gain a lot of negative press due to his supposed, supposed, in quotes, mafia connections. It's pretty obvious that he had mafia connections, is just to what extent. Pictures of him consorting with really high up mafia members in Cuba surfaced. He also got into a lot of trouble for assaulting a reporter outside of a nightclub. The reporter wrote some, wrote some of the most scathing articles about Frank's mafia ties. But Frank insisted that the reporter called him a racial slur. What? Looked like you were going to say something. Well, he assaulted her. Well, it's a man. But him. Yeah. yeah. But, like, he said, Frank said he assaulted him because he was called a racial slur by the reporter. I understand. The reporter. I'm not saying it's okay to use racial slurs when you're assaulted, but I'm like, my man. (laughs) It was after, like, he called him a racial slur, so Frank hit him. Like, Frank says that's why he did it, not. Okay. Whatever. Frank, the reporter sued Frank. But dropped a lawsuit after he claims the mafia threatened his life if he didn't drop it. Oh, my God. Frank also later admitted that his sudden drop-off probably had to do with his refusal to change up his style or evolve musically. Years of singing daily took its toll on Frank, and he completely lost his voice for several months. Uh, Yeah, that's what <laughs> I'm saying. Maybe don't sing that much a day. <laughs> God, drink some tea. <laughs> For about five years, his career plummeted, and so did his mental health. He divorced Nancy in 1951 and married Ava Gardner, which further hurt his reputation. That relationship with Ava was always rocky and often violent. Apparently, several times, his career turmoil and his relationship drove him to consider suicide on at least three occasions. One time, Ava had to wrestle a gun away from him that went off, but thankfully missed them both. That poor woman. Yeah, they were they were not good together. Like that was a very bad relationship, and it also hurt his public image because good Catholic boys weren't supposed to get divorced for no reason. So, probably trying desperately to salvage something, the Columbia president pressured Frank into recorded banal novelty songs that hurt his artistic credibility. What? Banal. I don't, I don't know. I think I pulled that from somewhere, but it's a bit like meaningless little like frivolous songs that like jingles basically. No one hired him for movies anymore. In 1952, his Columbia contract was not renewed and his network television show was canceled. But ironically, some of the recordings that he made during this time are now considered some of his best. Like I'm a fool to want you in 1951 which is right here. This is so moody, it hurts. (laughs) It just says, where are you in cursive? You can see how this is like very similar to his other stuff. Like he hasn't really changed up a lot. He has his style and like that's... But he's also had this style for 10 plus years now. Yeah. That was point. I'm a fool to want you To want a love that can't be true A love that's there for others too I'm a fool to hold you such a fool Honestly, I'm here for that. <laughs> okay. But also remember this was the 50s when rock and roll was starting to come out. So like that's what people were wanting at this time and he's releasing this, which is just not... Share like it has the angst though. The kids are going to think this is so old school and so boring. Alright, let's... I think that's really good. That was really good. It's one of his best. It's considered one of his best. This was when Frank started to play heavily in Las Vegas and when the Rat Pack formed. Probably one of the biggest losses of this time period was the death of his publicist, George Evans, who died of a heart attack at age 48. 
safe to say Sinatra needed a publicist during this time, considering all of his hoopla about the mafia and the other stuff he was doing. Yeah. But 1953 started his magnificent comeback. He won an Oscar for his portrayal of a soldier in the critically acclaimed From Here to Eternity. That's ironic. <laughs> he desperately wanted that part and agreed to work at a lower rate in order to get it. The studio president did not want him to get it, but he did a great job. Later that year, Frank signed a seven-year recording contract with Capitol Records. He appeared in nine films in two years, most of them successes. He hired a new musical arranger who helped him get back on the charts and stay there through the end of the 50s. And if I know you haven't, but if anyone out there has seen The Godfather, this period is kind of like there's a character in The Godfather who's basically Frank during this period. Like he's down on his luck, he's lost his voice, no one's hiring him in movies. And then the studio head, who very much did not want him in a movie, uh, woke up to his horse's head in his bed from like the godfather that was his way of like threatening the studio head so the studio had cast him and there are some people who think that's pretty biographical <laughs> like somewhat accurate so oh my god this dude just has everything like given yeah. to him by someone else yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> oh my goodness i mean gracious. he did pay a lot for his mafia connections at least in the press and stuff yeah but like someone's getting what he wants for him yeah <laughs> so that arranger one of the first songs they made with his new arranger was called i've got the world on a string when frank heard it he exclaimed i'm back i'm back yeah i mean yeah yep. and here is that song It makes sense that this is a, like a different arranger. You have the first arrangement style and then this arrangement style, like the bigger, brighter sound. Like it's very distinctly different. And I was wondering when that was going to happen. This is capital years. What a world. What a life. I'm in love. I got a song that I sing. I can make the rain go. Anytime I move my finger, lucky me, can't you see I'm in love? Life is a beautiful thing, as long as I hold the string, I'd be a silly so-and-so, if I should ever let it go. I got the world on a string, right, so I've got a world on a string. Part of his big comeback. Now that his audience of teenage girls had grown up, Frank changed his image into an aged romantic bachelor. Frank worked with that new arranger, whose name was Nelson Riddle, to develop a signature sound that kept him relevant and on top for most of the 50s into the early 60s. Nice job, Nelson. Yep. He released a string of hits, kept starring in movies, and performed regularly in Vegas. Most of the albums he made during the end of his capital years with Riddle are considered masterpieces. But by 1961, Frank grew dissatisfied with Capitol and started a feud with the label president. Shocker, Frank Sinatra in a feud? It's unheard <laughs> of. He wanted his own label, which had been a dream of his for a while now, so he built Reprise Records with the promise that artists would one day own all of their own stuff. The label eventually became a powerhouse until he sold it for $80 million. Did people own their music? I think the idea was that, like, over a period of time, you got back the rights, and I don't know that anyone ever did before mm. he sold it. And once he sold it, that idea was kind of dropped. Well, that's shitty. By the other label who bought it, who were like, no, we're not going to do that. His first album on that label reached number four, but unfortunately, starting reprise meant he had to part with Nelson Riddle. Because Nelson Riddle was a Capitol Records arranger, so. So what do you do after that? <laughs> Seems like you're done with the... <laughs> no, I'm actually, I'm very curious to like pinpoint which songs come from which arranger. Yeah. I, th I think he just worked with a different arranger. I don't yeah, like but like wh on what songs? Oh, well, we're getting to one. In the early 60s, Frank recorded at a furious pace, releasing something like 14 albums in three years. 
That resulted in some good albums, but also a lot of rushed and not great ones. Mm -hmm. In 1965, Billboard announced that Frank might have reached the peak of eminence. He was releasing hit songs, starring in blockbuster movies, performing for large crowds. He won a Grammy for Best Album, and he played a bunch of benefit concerts. So he was just kind of everywhere at this point. Right. Here is a Grammy-winning single from that album, ironically titled, It Was a Very Good Year. This was the album that I used to listen to a ton. Nothing but the best. I'm not sure if that's when an album or a best I album. It's a best album. Okay, that's what I would think by looking at it, but you never know. It was a very good year. It was a very good year <laughs> for small oh, town girls and soft summer nights. We'd hide from the lights on the village green when I was seventeen. Can we skip further? Trying to remember. Yeah, see, like it just kind of like yeah. cycles. When I yep. was 35. But the end of the decade was somewhat marred by misguided attempts to appeal to youth audiences. Oh no. This was after his iconic 1969 song, My Way, which is, again, ironic because he stopped doing things his way after releasing that song. He tried to. So, My Way was at Reprise. Yes, I think so. Uh, he tried to release songs by some modern rock composers since the Woodstock generation dominated the charts. Interesting. Leading Frank to say, quote, no one is writing songs for me anymore. Oh, no. Poor baby. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1971, Frank started a self-imposed retirement. He told, he told a journalist, quote, I've got things to do. Like the first thing is not to do anything at all for eight months, maybe <laughs> a year. <laughs> I can get on board with that attitude. <laughs> oh, my God. However, Frank came out of retirement two years later with a new album called Old Blue Eyes is Back. Oh, my God. <laughs> he didn't even spell out old. It's O-L apostrophe. The album was a success, reaching number 13 on the charts. He started playing in Vegas again. And during this point, Frank started to really attack the press. He called the journalists who relentlessly hounded him in Australia a bunch of bad words that I'm not going to repeat. I mean, fair. <laughs> when asked to apologize, he said that instead they should apologize for, quote, 15 years of abuse I have taken from the world press, end quote. Also fair. But then unions basically held him captive in Australia by grounding all of his <laughs> planes and canceled his concerts. <laughs> His manager wrote to him, or his manager wrote him an apologizing note that they played one last concert, and they played one last concert before leaving Australia. Oh my God. So he didn't even apologize. His manager wrote a note. <laughs> Frank was like, fine. <laughs> Frank continued to play in Vegas and New York, New York City quite frequently. In 1977, on our way to visit Frank in Vegas, his mother died in a plane crash. Oh. Yeah. It got, apparently, they like, flew over some mountains and the pilot lost all visibility and crashed into a mountain because it was Aww. snowy. His first album in six years was released in 1980 after years spent performing casually in Vegas and other places. I mean, I can imagine that like the death of his mother kind of hit him pretty hard and he wasn't really in the mood to make a whole bunch of music. Yeah. His voice had grown increasingly gritty from years of alcohol and cigarettes in the early 90s, he returned to Capitol to record two albums called Duets that paired him with notable singers. They weren't hits with the critics, but they sold millions of albums and ended up being his last albums. Is this Something Stupid? No. No, Something Stupid was earlier. Oh, that one's my know. favorite. I thought you meant, like, were the albums stupid? I feel like he did Something Stupid with his daughter. Probably. I thought you meant, like... Was it like Dean Martin's 
Nashville sessions. Stupid. No, <laughs> no. The first one of his duet albums is his best-selling album of all time. I figured you'd like this one. You probably heard it. But here is his duet with Barbra Streisand from these albums. trying to find something that like oh Barbara I'm trying to find something that like splits up like these songs were this record company this song is this record I've company I've got a crush on you sweetie pie all the day and night time hear me sigh I never had the least notion that I could fall with so much emotion. I wonder, could you cool? Now, could you care for a cozy cottage that we could share? He continued to try and perform, but his memory was failing him. He'd often forget lyrics and even fainted on stage once. Oh no. That means it's just time to hang it up, Frank. His final performances were in Japan in 1994. He had already basically retired from films to focus on stage performances by this point. At the age of 82 in 1998, Frank passed away from a heart attack. Before that, he had been repeatedly hospitalized for a variety of health concerns. On the night of his death, the lights of the Empire State Building were turned blue, the lights of the Vegas Strip were dimmed, and the casino stopped spinning for one minute. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, he basically built Vegas, so. Frank Sinatra will probably always be remembered in American music, and he will always be considered a controversial figure due to his association with the mob and his legendary temper. There is so much more that can, that can and probably needs to be said about Frank. He looms so large in the history of American music and pop culture, it's really hard to compare him with like anyone. Mm-hmm. Maybe Michael Jackson comes the closest. I mean, I tried to keep this focus only on his music career, and mm-hmm. we're like, I mean, f- like 50 minutes into this, just talking about his music. So you could... In order to like properly properly cover Frank, you'd need an entire podcast, and I'm sure those exist out there somewhere. So go find mm-hmm. them. We could and do it. Send me like the episode that really <laughs> goes into details on like the tea. We could do a whole another episode on his personal life. We could do a whole another one on his film career. Another one on his radio and TV shows. So he's really like it's just impossible to cover him in one episode. But I did my best. But that is Frank Sinatra. It didn't ruin him. It was yeah, pretty mild in comparison to what it could have been. <laughs> Talked a little bit about his mob stuff, but it goes like way deeper than that. There's one point where he also tried to run over a reporter. Oh, my God. Because they were like blocking him on a runway from leaving. And so he just like ran them over. Honestly, him and his fights with Ava Gardner were pretty legendary. Like one time they just drove down some town in a desert in california or nevada and were just started shooting a gun at things so they got into some legal trouble for that and his manager had to come like bail him out <sighs> god yeah he was he was pretty protected by his like team they did a good job those poor people <laughs> yeah all right it well. seems like a lot of my faves are actually during his uh reprise records really cool. season like a lot of the original like um Fly Me to the Moon is um, uh, not not Capital. Capital was first, right? Columbia's is Columbia the one was that first. 
Columbia was first, capital yes. was and then after. capital and then reprice. Okay. And then capital again. Okay. End. Yeah, I think like Fly Me to the Moon was capital, um, which makes sense because of the 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 horns. I've got you under my skin. I didn't play a lot of like the the big ones because I figured you everyone know those. knows them. Yeah, I wanted to play some of his maybe lesser known ones. Like I think my favorite one to d- from today is is polka, polka dots, dots and, and moonbeams. Well, it's technically Tommy Dorsey. That wasn't even him. Polka dots and moonbeams was adorable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's Frank. Next week we do a bonus episode on Nat King Cole. That's going to be awesome. Just because he's not he's not Rat Pack, but I feel like he's kind of fits that vibe. <laughs> like he's that style. Similar time period. He's a crooner. Yeah, crooner style. This one's my favorite. Right, well, while we're listening to this, do you have any send off about Frank? No. You still like him just as much. It's just so like tied into. My memories of like my Alright, well that's the end of Frank. Mm-hmm. Join us next week or whenever we actually get around to recording again and talk about <laughs> Nat King Cole. We'll do it. It'll be great. We'll play some Christmas music at the end of that one. Yeah, because <laughs> it'll probably be Christmas. Bye.